Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for the last few weeks, uh, we have been reading Luke's story of Jesus' final journey into Jerusalem for that last week before his arrest and his crucifixion. And this morning, we come to the end of that journey when Jesus uh, at last enters into the city. So I'm going to read that for us. I'll read Luke 19, uh, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we talk about this word that we've just read and heard together, as we think about it for a few minutes, that you would meet us and that you would give us the eye to see our king again. In all of his glory and all of his power, with salvation and with might and with humility. Help us to see him and renew our faith in him again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am a a fan of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Um, Some of you know that. I mention it from time to time in sermons. And one of my favorite adaptions of it was a film that was made in London in 1970. Uh, It's just called Scrooge, this film. Maybe some of you know it. It's actually a musical starring Albert Finney, Uh, and it is exactly as strange and as colorful as you might imagine a musical that is made in 1970 in London would be. It is exactly like you imagine. Anyhow, I, uh, I trust that you know the broad outline of the story of A Christmas Carol in the end. Scrooge is transformed. That's how that story works. And in this version, that transformation is pictured in an almost 20-minute musical free-for-all, with Scrooge running up and down the streets of London, singing and dancing with all of the people uh, that he has wronged throughout his life, and trying to make it right with them by giving them presents and forgiving them of all the debts that they owe to him. And then, after he does all that, he dresses up like Father Christmas. He dresses up like we call him Santa Claus. And he visits the Cratchits. 
If you don't know the story, the Cratchits, uh, Bob Cratchit is his employee. He's treated him bad his whole life. So he dresses up like Father Christmas. He goes to visit the Cratchits. He gives them this big old goose. He gives them a bunch of presents. And everyone is happy and generally very confused. And then he asks, you still don't recognize me, do you? You still don't recognize me. And they tell him they don't have any idea who he is. And then Finney reaches up and he pulls down that fake Father Christmas beard that he has been wearing and he smiles. And you can see his whole face for just a second. And the effect of that short flash of revelation is immediate. Mrs. Cratchit screams in terror at seeing who it is. It's pretty great. And uh, during this week, as I was thinking over this passage that we just read together, I thought about that moment more than once. That brief blink and you might miss it moment of revelation where who he really is is made perfectly clear. And I got to tell you, church, there are several of those moments in this beautiful passage, this beautiful story that Luke tells us, several brief flashes that make it clear that we are not just watching a king. We are not just looking at another king in an innumerable line of kings that the world has known. There are several flashes that make it clear that we are watching the king, as in the king who laid the foundation of the earth, as in the king who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. And I don't think there are any of those flashes, church, not one of them that is more hair-raising in the best and most possible and the best and most beautiful way that anything can really be fearful and hair-raising to us than that last line where Jesus says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I mean, who gets to say that? Who gets to say that? And Palm Sunday is about Jesus as that king, that king. And I hope that today we will, we will be reminded of what that king looks like and what that king does and what it means to follow that king. So Luke begins, when he had said these things, he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. That is a very specific way of putting things. Uh, Luke obviously wants us to remember what it is that Jesus has just said, because in some way, Luke thinks that will illuminate what we are about ready to see happen. And if you were here last week, you might remember what Jesus had just said. It was a parable. It was a parable about a nobleman who went off into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return with that kingdom as a king. Even though there is this delegation out there who hates him and who doesn't want him to be king. Now that is uh, that's pretty on the nose. And it's easy for us to say that because uh, we have the benefit of hindsight. But if you know how the upcoming week plays out for Jesus, and more particularly... If you know how the upcoming week plays out for the disciples, you know that despite the fact that they had heard that parable and that story, despite the fact that they had heard a bunch of other stories just like it, despite the fact that Jesus has just told them straight out exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem, you know that despite all that, they find themselves completely confused and flat-footed 
when it all starts going down. I'm sure they knew that story was important. I'm sure that they knew that it meant something important, but the truth is, it took them a while to make it out and to figure out where they fit in that story. And I just want to say that that is often how Jesus' teaching, and for that matter, the teaching of all of Scripture, works for people like you and me too. I mean, for example, Scripture teaches us about suffering and it teaches us about trouble. And in some way, of course, that prepares people like us for when suffering and trouble come. But the vividness of Scripture's teaching, the richness of what Jesus says about suffering and trouble, the deeply practical comfort of it, the meaning of it, the deep meaning of it, that stuff pops to the surface and it becomes alive and it hums with reality and truth when we are actually in trouble and when we are actually in suffering. And the same thing is true about dealing with hard relationships or with experiencing peace or raising kids or forgiveness or anything else that the scripture teaches us about. And that's why God has given it to us in the first place. That's why Jesus tells parables to his friends so that they can be ready. That's why God teaches us. And that's why it's our great benefit to know it. So that when we get to the place where we need it, we have it. And it is alive. And it is vital to us. That's why the psalm writer says stuff like, I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. So becoming intimate with the story of Scripture, becoming intimate with the teaching of Scripture, it's, as we say every week, for our good. <laughs> so let's be about it. So they're very near these two villages. They're at the base of Mount Olivet, and Jesus gives two of his disciples very specific instructions. The mission that these two get sent on is one of a small handful of stories that all four of the gospel writers tell us about. Jesus tells them that they're going to find a colt tied. And even though I'm not sure that they could know this just by looking at the animal, Jesus also makes sure that they know that it will be one that has never been ridden before. Jesus tells them to untie it and to bring it back. And he says, look, if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say that the Lord has need of it. Now, I, I've heard that story my whole life. I've read that story my whole life. I know some of you have too. So maybe we are the ones that need to be reminded that it is kind of strange. That is a strange set of instructions. Go into a village and abscond with a donkey. And if anyone, you know, like the owners, asks you why you're doing it, just tell them some vague thing about the Lord needs it, and you'll be fine. Everything will be fine. <laughs> it's strange, and it's out of the ordinary, and it's very specific, and that is the point. Jesus is orchestrating something. A number of things, in fact. Now, we don't know who the two were um, that were sent, I always like to imagine it was Thaddeus and Bartholomew, because you never hear anything about those two apostles. And wouldn't it be great if this was their job? But I don't know. That's not the point. The point, which also happens to be the first flash of who this king really is in this passage, is what Luke says in verse 32. 
those who were sent went away and they found it just as he had told them. Right down to the owners being okay with that line about the Lord needing it. And church, this is the first of several places in the story of Jesus last week in Jerusalem where he says that something is going to happen and then almost immediately it does. The gospel writers don't make a big deal about this. They, they actually slip these things in with hardly any comment at all, mostly with no comment at all. And the effect of that art is beautiful and it makes it even more clear. This is the strong hand of Jesus. Effort, effortlessly orchestrating things, effortlessly moving things towards his end and towards his intention because he is that king. Church, what happened to Jesus that week is not the result of someone well-intentioned who got in over his head and got sideways with the authorities. What happened to Jesus that week was not the authorities' hair-trigger, over-the-top, example-making response to a reluctant revolutionary. None of that is true. I'm telling you, church, what happened to Jesus that week was exactly what Jesus wanted to happen. Don't ever forget that. It was what he wanted. It was what he wanted, church, and he crafted it before the foundation of the world for your good and for mine and for the life of the world forever. Right down to the cult. I mean, expectation was high. This is Passover time. The pilgrims are streaming into Jerusalem to celebrate the big festival and people on the streets had just outright started calling Jesus king. They were just calling him king on the streets. So I can't imagine what the disciples thought was going to happen next. But I'm guessing that it was not that Jesus will roll into the city on a donkey. But before we can even get to that, I want us to pay attention to a couple of things. First of all, it's that Jesus is able to ride this formerly unridden animal with no problem at all. They set Jesus on it, Luke says in verse 35. Now, I don't know the first thing about this stuff. I'll be honest. <laughs> but all re week I was reading commentaries telling me that the last thing an unridden animal would do the first time someone tries to sit on it is this. Like, oh, great. Where do you want to go? But livestock and and creeping things and the beasts of the earth, all creatures great and small, they know their maker. I think this is another flash of recognition. Jesus is that king. Of course the donkey was fine with it. It's the best day of that little animal's life. And the second thing is maybe more obvious is that, that Jesus had walked everywhere his entire life. Always, everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus is walking somewhere. It's obvious. So he, he certainly could have walked down the Mount of Olivet for the last one mile into Jerusalem. He could have done that. But he's orchestrating something. He's just told a parable, and now he is acting that parable out. 
And at the heart of this thing that he's acting out is this image. It's this image that you and I, that we just said together at the beginning of this service in the call to worship. At the heart of what Jesus is acting out is this improbable image from Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, of all of the colorful language, of all of the varied and vivid language in Scripture about the coming of a king and what that king is going to look like and what that king is going to do when he arrives, it is this specific image that Jesus chooses to enact. Righteous and having salvation is he, for sure, and humble and mounted on a donkey. It's not that Jesus isn't worthy of a war steed. It's not that there aren't places in Scripture that describe the coming of the king in fearful, awesome power because he is worthy. And there are places that describe that. But for this moment, for this entrance, for this thing that Jesus is doing, he chooses humility. He rides on an animal that children ride at the fair. Because the great victory that this king is going to win at the end of the week is to be raised in death on a Roman cross. That is the great victory of this king. After having been slandered and after having been abused and after having been convicted at this shameful, sham, unjust trial and after having been betrayed by an intimate and after having been told uh, by his friends in their loudest voices that they will stick to him in the end, they abandon him. After all of that, this king's victory is to die. <laughs> so, of course, he rides in on a donkey in humility. And he did this for us. He did this for us, church, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be called his sisters so that we can be called his brothers, so that we, we can have a vocation in this world, not only to live as citizens of his gracious and peaceable kingdom, but actually to have a hand in building that gracious and peaceable kingdom on earth like it is in heaven. He did it for us. And I'm telling you, church, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in that moment that his disciples, it does not matter that that whole multitude who was singing out have their sights set lower than all of that. It does not matter that their sights are set lower on some thin, temporary, nationalistic triumph that they hope that Jesus will be able to eke out that week. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they don't recognize him. Because the songs that they are singing and the unlocked joy with which they sing them are absolutely right. I'm telling you, they're right. They come correct that day and they spread out cloaks and they shout hosannas and they wave palms and they say they rejoice and they praise God with a loud voice and they rightly sing Psalm 118 to Jesus just like we do before we eat the meal that he gave us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and these coat-slinging commoners unknowingly mingle their voices with the angels from the beginning of Luke's story, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And church, they're right. <laughs> they're absolutely right. Because that deep, 
that deep human longing, that longing that is common to literally every one of us in here and every other person that you know and every other person that's ever lived, that deep human longing for a king who saves and that crazy kind of joy that you feel when he shows up, it's all right. It's all precisely right. And Jesus receives it with gladness, just like he does this morning when we do it again. And all of it is too much for some of the Pharisees, members of that uh, delegation Jesus had spoken about in the parable, those ones who hated him, didn't want him to be king. I mean, they don't want anybody singing Psalm 118 to Jesus, that's for sure. So they say, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to zip it. And that's when that strong flash of revelation comes, that blink and you might miss it moment that cannot be misunderstood. Don't these guys know? Don't they know that all creation waits with eager longing? Don't they know that the trees of the forest will sing for joy? When he comes? Don't they know that the mountains and the hills will break forth like a choir together and the trees will clap their hands? I guess not. So Jesus tells them, and anybody who has ears to hear, you cannot quiet this song no matter what you do. If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Jesus is that king. And no other king will do. No other king will do. Not for the fulfillment of that deep and universal and truly human longing to have ourselves be set right and to have this broken world be set right. Only one king can do that. Not that we uh, haven't tried to set up other ones who might be more amenable to our autonomy. Not that we haven't tried to set up other ones who might deliver more quickly than it seems like he does. We've definitely done that. <laughs> C.S. Lewis once wrote, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, film stars instead, famous prostitutes and gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble down poison. Every one of us in here, every one of us, we have a king. We all have a king. We've all crowned someone. We've all crowned something over us to rule us. And it might not be a person, like Lewis said. In fact, for people like us, it most usually isn't a person. It could just as easily be a political cause or romantic love or our work and our vocation or even the happiness of our kids. Anything really or any combination of things that we think will set us right. But as good as those things can be, and some of them are really good, they can't set us right. And they can't set the world right. 
And when, we, when they go off the rails, like they always do, we find ourselves crushed by those things that were never meant to be the king. And church, the remedy for that is to recognize the king and to follow him in repentance and faith and to worship him with loud songs of joy on our lips. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask again that you would give us eyes to see the king, that king, the one with you at the foundation of the world, the one who, who in humility came so that we could be set right and this world could be set right. Help us to follow. Help us to praise. Do this so that we'll grow up in our faith and so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.